Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elizabeth Mack. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Karen Verlot, and we will be talking about her article, Adverse Events in Pediatric Critical Care Non-Survivors with a Low Predicted Mortality Risk, a Multicenter Case Control Study, published in January 2023 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. To access the full article, visit pccmjournal.org. Dr. Verlot is a pediatric intensivist at Radboud University Medical Center in Nijmegen, Netherlands. Welcome, Dr. Verlot. And before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? Hello. No, I don't have any disclosures. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for this really important contribution to the literature. I'm curious, how did your team come up with the idea to do this study? What was sort of this, the backstory there? Well, thank you first for your kind words and for the opportunity to talk about my paper. Well, both as a pediatric intensivist and as a researcher, I'm interested in quality and safety in the PQ and also in PQ outcome. And five years ago, we published a retrospective cohort study on PQ patients with a low predicted mortality risk, and we call them low-risk non-survivors. It was published in PCCM, and what we found was that children with complex chronic conditions and unplanned admissions, they were associated with death. But what happened with these patients during their PQ stay? Could adverse events play a role? And it's probably known to the auditors, but if a patient is harmed by healthcare management rather than by the underlying disease, that's what we call adverse events. And we know that if you look in the general PQ population, between a quarter and three quarters of all PQ patients experience at least one adverse event during their PQ stay. And the numbers depend a bit on the method which is being used to detect adverse events. And of course, over the last years, many safety programs have been implemented, uh, like line bundles, crew resource management, etc. But still, adverse events occur, and they can lead to temporary harm, but also to more severe harm, like permanent harm, or they might even contribute to death. And Gitty Larson, she, she studied also adverse events in 2007, and she found that among medical patients, the sicker patients, the patients with a higher PRISM score, they had more adverse events. But among surgical patients, it was the opposite. Children with a lower PRISM score, they had more adverse events. So there might be differences in the occurrence of adverse events among different patient groups. So we looked again on, in this group of PQ low-risk non-survivors, and we wanted to know what happened with these patients and might adverse events play a role in the mortality. Because if you have a low-risk PQ patient, well, you don't expect this patient to die. But of course, if you have a big group of them, some patients will die. But they don't die because the model says so. They die for some underlying medical reason. And we wanted to know if adverse events contributed to death. And if this was the case, then we might have opportunities to improve the quality of care and to improve the safety among this group of PQ patients. So the primary aim of our study was to study the occurrence of adverse events in low-risk non-survivors. And secondary aims were to study the nature, the severity, and the preventability of these adverse events and to establish the contribution of adverse events to the mortality. 
Well, thank you so much for that. And and thank you for really your transparency and, and vulnerability as you walk through this process. It's a It's a lot to digest for sure. Can you share a little bit about the Dutch registry? I'm curious, for those of us around the world, does it include all the patients in every Dutch PICU? Who enters the data? How detailed? Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, in the Netherlands, we have like 80 million inhabitants and we have almost 5,000 PICU admissions each year. And PICU care is really centralized into seven PICUs, tertiary PICUs. And all these centers, they contribute to the data registry. And the PICUs, they, they transport their patients. So all PICU care is taking place in, within those centers and all data are within the data registry. And I've been involved in this data registry for more than 20 years. Well, the data are entered by either pediatric intensivists. In some centers, it's done by trained medical students. And uh, some data are also gathered by automatic distraction from the medical records. But the way the data are gathered, that's a bit, depends a bit on the center. It's, it, it might differ between the PQs. And what... Yeah. Yeah, do you understand it? Yeah, that that yeah. makes good sense. Sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. No problem, no problem. Now, and in the registry, we collect general patient characteristics, like type of admission, ventilator days, length of stay, and PQ outcome. And we also collected diagnosis, for which we use the diagnose list developed by the Australian and New Zealand Pediatric Intensive Care Society. And we use mortality prediction models. We use both PRISM models and PIM models and their updates. But of course, some of the models are a bit old and we recalibrate them. So the the mortality prediction is correct because some models were developed 30 years ago and uh, mortality has decreased substantially since then. Yes, thankfully. So your aim, as I understand it, was to determine the contribution of adverse events to mortality and to estimate the occurrence of adverse events in each of your groups, the low-risk non-survivors, the low-risk survivors, the high-risk survivors, and the high-risk non-survivors. And it sounds like the risk was determined by PIM and PRISM. If you don't mind, just tell us a little bit more about how you conducted the study, how were those risk categories defined, the, the cutoffs and such. This is just so interesting. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah, it's quite a complex design, and I'll try to explain. We Our cases were the low-risk non-survivors, and they were PQ patients with a mortality risk of less than 1%, according to either the recalibrated PRISM model or the recalibrated PIM2 model, and they died during the PQ stay. Those were the cases, and they were extracted from an 11-year cohort PQ admissions between 2006 and 2017, so a long period. And then we selected three control groups. First of all, low-risk survivors. They also had a low mortality risk, less than 1%, but they survived, obviously. And then we selected also patients from the other side of the risk profile, the high-risk patients. And they had a recalibrated mortality risk of 30% or more. And they also were non-survivors, high-risk non-survivors, and high-risk survivors. So first stratification, and then we randomly selected 125 patients from each of these four groups. Thank you for that. It is complex, and I appreciate you explaining. As someone in the quality and safety realm, 
I'm really interested in your findings and it and it sounds like like many things in medicine it depends. So the low risk non-survivor group had more chronic complex conditions than the other other categories, but it sounds like the occurrence of adverse events in the lowest non-survivors was higher than in the other categories as well. Can you Tell us a little bit more about the most frequent adverse events and the low-risk non-survivors, in other words, the category we're, we're most concerned about. Well, first of all, it's, it's, it's important that all the four groups, they had different clinical characteristics, as you mentioned, uh, like complex chronic conditions. They were very common among the low-risk non-survivors. More than 90% of them had a complex underlying complex chronic condition, higher compared to all other groups. And they also had a long length of stay. And then they had, indeed, they had more adverse events compared to the low-risk survivors and also compared to the high-risk non-survivors. And if we look at the, at the type of adverse event, it was very diverse. Uh, the most frequently found adverse events were infectious uh, of, by nature, like ventilator-acquired pneumonia, central line infections, etc., they occurred in one-third of the adverse events happening in the low-risk non-survivors. And second most common were drug or fluid-related adverse events. But also in 23%, we had to classify the nature of the adverse event as the category other because there were either multiple factors involved or it was hard to establish the, the nature of the adverse events. For example, patients with delirium, it's often very multifactorial and still... What was a bit, yeah, a pity that I cannot say that if you rule out all infections, then we do not have any adverse events anymore. It's very diverse. I appreciate you walking us through that. And I'm curious, what did you find in terms of preventability, specifically in the low-risk non-survivor group? Well, let's first say that among the low-risk non-survivors, in 30% of them, an adverse event contrib contributed to death. And looking at all the adverse events in this group, about a third was preventable. So we had in almost 9% of the, those low-risk non-survivors, there was a preventable adverse event which contributed to death. But then contribution to death, you can also divide it a little bit. Some, it's very rare that death is completely caused by an adverse event. It was only a 3% of the cases. And often it's a mixture of the underlying condition of the child and also the, the, the adverse event. For example, we had a child with a brain tumor and he had an obstruction of an intraventricular drain. But there was a delay in discovering this and in resolving this problem. So the ch child died, but it died partially because of the adverse event, which was the delay in the treatment of the obstruction of the drain and partly because of the brain tumor. And this was an example of a ad preventable adverse event. But two-thirds of the adverse events are unpreventable. It's bad luck. Do you mind sharing with us maybe some other examples of preventable and non-preventable adverse events and maybe how the preventability is determined or adjudicated by your team? Yeah, preventability, is, it's always hard, eh? in, in, especially in retrospect. We used a six-point Likert scale, grading from one, which is not preventable at all, until six, which is certainly preventable. And if you scored 
grade four or higher, we considered it preventable. Examples of preventable adverse events might be like central line infections. Preventability is hard to judge retrospectively because our information from the medical records is sometimes incomplete and there is a risk of what we call hindsight bias. As an investigator, I'm aware of the outcome of the patient and it might, might be hard to judge preventability. So what we try to do is using the guidelines and protocols that were valid at the year of admission to judge preventability and be not too strict. And we also had an expert panel to discuss problems, especially in preventability of the uh, adverse events. And second, we also performed a reliability study, uh, not only for the presence, but also for the preventability of the adverse events, uh, which showed, showed a reasonable uh, outcome. Preventability is quite hard and it changes over time. Absolutely. As we develop more capacity to handle something, it's maybe more preventable. Thank you for that. So what are your next steps as a pediatric critical care community in the Netherlands? Well, there are several steps we are working on at the moment. One thing is trying to extract diagnosis more easily from the electronic medical records in a uniform way. And the second thing is we are developing more long-time outcomes and we want to incorporate that into our uh, data registry. And uh, we are also working on a collaboration with other Dutch data registries since we are quite small as a PQ data registry and it's very hard to improve and to to facilitate the registry if you're so small. So it's better to work together. Well, thank you for that. And it sounds like there's been quite a lot of work that has gone into developing uh, this collaboration, this registry around the country. And and I know many of us around the world can sympathize with your EHR extraction (laughs) issues. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? Well, Maybe stress again that I think it's important to be aware of adverse events, especially in low-risk non-survivors. And patients with complex chronic conditions, they form a growing part of the PICU population. And they may have an increased mortality risk, as we know, and they are very prone to adverse events. There's no easy solution, but awareness is the first step. And then it takes a multi-system approach, of course, to diminish the number of adverse events. So this is a small step, but I hope it's it's encouraging other people to, to be aware of adverse events. Yes, your work has been very inspiring, and, and I am really grateful for what you all have done as a collaboration. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine podcast. For the Society of Critical Care Medicine podcast, I'm Elizabeth Mack. Thank you. Elizabeth H. Mack, MD, MS, FCCM is a professor of pediatrics and chief of pediatric critical care at Medical University of South Carolina Children's Health in Charleston, South Carolina. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The SCCM podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Find more episodes at sccm.org slash podcast. This podcast is for educational purposes only. The material presented is intended to represent an approach, view, statement, or opinion of the presenter that may be helpful to others. The views and opinions expressed herein 
are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of SCCM. SCCM does not recommend or endorse any specific test, physician, product, procedure, opinion, or other information that may be mentioned.